Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to jump into it, Matthew 26, and here we go. Jesus is going now, after we've been this far, if you've been joining us, Jesus has had the Last Supper. He has had his high priestly prayer. He has now gone into Gethsemane. We read in Matthew 26, verse 36, and I'm going to be referring to all the different texts, but I'm going to be focusing mostly in Matthew 26. Then comes Jesus with them onto a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who are, who's the two sons of Zebedee? Which ones? James and John. Good. And began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. And he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He went a little farther, fell on his face, prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he comes, finding unto the disciples, and finds them asleep, and says, to Peter, what, could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. He left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he comes to the disciples and said, Sleep on, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet speak, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him said he'd give a sign. Let's stop right there. Okay, they're headed for Gethsemane. Here's what we know. That they go to Gethsemane, a place that they had visited often. The passage says so. Frequently over the last three years he's come and he's probably used it as a prayer place, used it as a respite place. Gethsemane would be just one of those garden areas. It was called Gethsemane. The, the term typically means the oil press. So apparently there were some vineyards there and it was used. It might have been private or public vineyards by this point. The Jews who come for Passover cannot leave the night of Passover in Jerusalem. They have to stay within the city confines. That's the Jewish law. So Gethsemane is still within the confines. Most of the evenings during this past week he's gone to Bethany, which is just a mile or two away. But this night he stays there because that's the Jewish law, that they are supposed to stay within the confines of the city to finish out Passover until the morning. So they go to this area, Gethsemane, and when he arrives, we understand that what he does is he leaves the disciples, most of them somewhere at the entryway, somewhere in one portion of it, and then he told, the, told them to wait, but he takes Peter, James, and John further in. Now Peter, James, and John has been with him, had been with him on a couple occasions, like the Mount of Transfiguration. They're referred to, if you start reading texts, you start reading commentaries, they're going to be referred to frequently as the inner three. And so the idea is that they were the, they were the most intimate, they were the closest, he shared with them, and for whatever reason he chose those three, that seems to be the pattern that's happening. They, uh, he says, sit here and pray. Now it's interesting that he gives them two areas to pray about. Okay, Matthew mentions one, and then he mentions the second one a little bit later. But we read in the, comparing the Gospels, he asks them to watch with him or to pray with him because his soul is exceeding sorrowful. So Jesus is, is requesting his disciples to pray for him, pray with him. And then he says, also pray for yourself, lest you enter into temptation. Because he's already predicted to them that they're going to be sifted this evening, that Satan wants to sift Peter and the others. And he's already predicted that there are many of 
of them are going to fall. The shepherd shall be smitten and the sheep shall be scattered out of Zacharias. So he's praying for them. You're going to, you're going to face trouble sometimes. You've got to be praying. got to be praying. He goes a little bit deeper, further into his area where he wants to pray, and we understand he prays alone. Now, you, in your thinking, in your memory, think with me for a moment, even from the text we just read, how do we know what indications, what statements are made that when he prayed, he, there was a, there, this wasn't just, um, just, you know, please bless this food prayer. It was a very intense prayer. How do you know that? Okay, he's going to sweat blood. That's going to be, that is true. That's part of it. Luke tells us, and Luke's the only one, that says that he's in such uh, physical distress that he sweats blood. One, number one, he sweats. Again, I'm, I'm going to be kind of crass here. He sweats, and it talks about great drops of blood falling. It's one thing to sweat, but now you're sweating profusely, and, you're, and it's drops of blood as well. So that whole factor, this is really an intense prayer. What else do you have? Any other, any other indications that, it, that it's intensity? How many times does he go and pray? We have three sessions, okay? We have three sessions, which means it's really, really, he's intense. What does he say? How does he describe himself in Matthew 26 when he talks about it? Exceedingly sorrowful, okay? So it's, he's got intensity here that's going on. What is his posture when he's praying? Okay, he's laboring, he falls on his face, he's prostrate, um, he's doing this for an extended period of time. So if we start putting all the different passages together that talk about what he's done and how he's praying, that he is really, really involved in this prayer. It is not just a passive prayer. This is intense for Jesus Christ. Okay, and it even talks about how he's, how he's in agony as he prays and the sweating of the blood. That's Luke again. And so there's several hours involved. This is a very passionate at time with Jesus Christ. He's praying to the Father. When he prays, there's going to be a couple different factors of his prayer. Exactly what he prays for. Mark is the only one that tells us this, that he begins the prayer with Abba Father. <clears throat> Abba being an Aramaic word that was more like the Daddy Father, Papa Father. It was more of an intimate term. So he and God are in very intimate terms at this point. They're very close. He is very, he is very uh, much so relying upon the Father. And he prays, remove this cup if possible. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, because this is an in, the interpretation of the text, and I know how we oftentimes view this idea of let this cup pass from me, and there's actually four different views of interpretations of what he's praying for when he says, let this cup pass from me. And I think it's important that we get it accurate. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, gives us something insight into the prayer that he prays. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, it talks about Jesus Christ, so also Christ glorified not himself. I'm in verse 5 to be made a high priest, but he said, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And he said also in another place, You are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, okay, unto him that was able to save him from death, okay, that's referring to what prayer time? What occasion that Jesus is praying? Okay, it's got to be the Garden of Gethsemane because the strong crying, the tears, and asking him that it was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. The word heard there in the original language is a positive answer. 
It's not just the idea that God heard him physically, but it's the idea he answered exactly what he was praying for. So when we start asking exactly what is this, let this cup pass from me, we have to remember that according to Hebrews chapter 5, God gave him a positive answer and a positive response to what he was asking. Now that was going to fall back in exactly what is he asking. Here's the possibilities that people suggest. Once, uh, often people suggest that he was saying, I don't want to experience the physical suffering at all. And so God, if you would, take away the physical suffering that has been planned. Um, I'll do it, but I'm doing it somewhat reluctantly now, and I would like another way. If that is true, if Jesus is saying at this point that he doesn't want to suffer and die on the cross, then we have a conflict with Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. Hebrews 5 7 says God answered his prayers. And if his prayer was, don't let me die and suffer, then God didn't answer his prayer. Does that, do you follow what I'm saying? Yes, no? Boy, today's a tough day. I understand. You know, it's the, it's, you know, must be the tired day, but do you, does that make sense? Okay, so what is Jesus asking? I don't think he's asking, I don't want to suffer. That doesn't make sense with Scripture. It doesn't make sense with his previous comments. His previous comments, he has already revealed, I have to die. He's already revealed in John, uh, uh, John 10, John 11, John 12. Even in John 12, he says, at one point, he says, should I ask to be saved from this hour? Now? Do you, should I now reverse my course? And the answer is absolutely not, the way he asked it in the original language. He said that the seed has to die. He has said um, frequently that he came to save that which was lost. This was part of the plan. He's predicted multiple times to the disciples, I go to Jerusalem, that I must die and fulfill Scripture. And so he's got this, this revelation going time and time and time again. In the Hebrew, I'm sorry, Isaiah talks about, Luke talks about how he steadfastly heads for Jerusalem. That he doesn't seem to be wavering from the idea that I have to suffer. He's committed to the suffering. He knows he's supposed to do it. So it, it doesn't make sense there and it doesn't fit Hebrews 5 that he says, I don't want to suffer. And God answered that prayer. Because if that's the case, he wouldn't have had to suffer at all. So that one doesn't make sense to me. This one, some say this, and I, I've never heard this until just recent time, that Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me right now, because what he's referring to, as some, some modern scholars have suggested, is he started sweating this drops of blood, he was dying. And he all of a sudden knew that his body was ready to give up the ghost. And so he didn't want to die prematurely. And he's saying, don't let me die right now in Gethsemane. I haven't fulfilled my task. That doesn't make any sense to me, but it is one that is suggested. There's others who say this. What he was praying for was to avoid becoming sin for us and becoming separated from the Father at all. Okay? And again, I suggest this to you. According to Hebrews 5, verse 7, did he become separated from the Father? Yes. Therefore, if Hebrews 5, 7 says God did answer his prayer, then this couldn't be the prayer. And we know as well that Jesus, Jesus uh, from his previous comments, excuse me, his previous comments, he was more than willing. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Again, he knew about this. He knew from the very beginning that he's going to give his life. I suggest to you that this is what he's praying. He was praying to be released from the penalty of spiritual death. Think with me all the, all the way through. 
Okay? What is the penalty of spiritual death? Separation from the Father. That is the penalty. How long? Okay, for eternity. And so you have separation from the Father is the penalty of death. Okay? And the question is how long? Jesus is asking the Father that he, after he has made sufficient payment through, through his ability to make sufficient payment for the penalty of sin that he would be restored to the Father in fellowship. That's his prayer. Not that he wouldn't have to suffer, not that he wouldn't be separated from the Father, but that the separation would have an ending to it, that there would be a conclusion to it, that God would accept his penalty, his payment, and then he would be restored in time to fellowship with the Father. And so he was going to make an eternal, an infinite eternal payment in a period of time, but he could do it because he was eternal. We can't, okay, because we're so time-based. That fits the general nature and tone of Jesus' comments. It also fits the idea that he was very, very, very concerned about being separated from the Father at any moment, yes, because they were so close. And so he doesn't want to be separated for eternity, becoming sin for us, but, he's, but he doesn't, he's not saying, I don't want to become sin for people. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I don't want to suffer. He's not saying that. He's saying, I don't want to be eternally separated from you once I've made the payment. Accept the payment, restore me to my former self and fellowship with you. And so that fits Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that God did hear his prayer, that God did answer the prayer, that he was restored. How do we know that? How do we know that he was restored in fellowship with the Father after he had taken upon him sin for us? There's several things. How do you know that he and the Father were not eternally separated, that God damned him to hell forever and ever? Okay. What's that? Well, his resurrection is, your, is, is an obvious proof. By the way, even on the cross, is there a transition in the cross between him and the Father? Okay, remember the beginning of the cross, the words that he says. At the beginning, um, uh, Father, now watch, watch his address. Father, forgive them, they... Okay, partially through during the course of it, my God, my God, why have you... Okay, okay, there's a separation that's taken place. At the beginning of the cross, what is he calling God? Father, forgive them. Now, this is the only time in the scriptures where Jesus calls him, my God, my God. There's a broken fellowship. What does he do towards the very end of his suffering on the cross? How does he address God? Father, into thy hands I... What does that imply? Okay, that implies the payment has been made and there is now a restoring that's taking place. He dies, he's in the grave. Uh, in the grave, according to Second Peter, he visits those who are in the other, I'm going to hold this view, the other compartment, that is the other part of Sheol, where he speaks to those, and then he's resurrected on the third day. Not only do we have proof that he is restored by resurrection, that God gives physical ample proof for everybody that Jesus is restored, what other event follows that shows Jesus and God are back in total harmony? His ascension, because where does he ascend? Up on high to the, where's he placed? 
right hand of the Father. And so his prayer is positively heard. Now here, I'm going to go through this once again. He did physically die, so he could not have been saying, God, don't let me die. God heard his prayer. God answered his prayer. That couldn't be part of that prayer. He did experience spiritual death, but he didn't have, it didn't last for uh, an infinite time period, it, Jesus was able with his infinity to take payment and be restored after a period of time. An unending separation was what he was praying for. He's restored in time. We've already mentioned how we know that because of all these different pre, these events that take place. So that cup passing from me is the idea of restore me to your fellowship in time. It's not that he is all of a sudden and here's the comment. Some say in his humanity, Jesus was becoming fearful of going through that. How do you separate his humanity and deity at times? And it's so it, it just makes more sense to me that this is his focus of what he's doing. He not only prays that let the cup pass, but nevertheless, not as I will, but what you will. We understand all that. That he was willing to even have eternal separation from the Father for us, but Father, please don't let it last eternity. Restore me in time. And so he prays the exact same way he tells us to pray. Not, uh, you know, um, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is giving us an example of that prayer time. He comes back now and he finds the disciples. They're sleeping. He rebukes them. We already read about this. He encourages them to pray. He says, you know, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. <coughs> and so he says, come on, guys, you got to get back to prayer. They get up. They start praying. They fall back to sleep. Jesus is in, in prayer. He comes back a second time, finds them asleep again, tells them to pray again. When you compare all the Gospels, his comments are, are splintered throughout the multiple times that he comes back. He comes back a second time says, guys, come on, you know, pray with me. He goes back for his third prayer session and then he comes back. Now somewhere in this, somewhere in this, Luke tells us that God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. Um, why, how this is all working, I don't understand. But God is giving him some spiritual stamina and strength, which he is saying, I am sorrowful. He says he is weak. He says that he is uses the word, I'm exhausted. And so the angel girds him up, gives him some strength and assists him, which he needs. Okay? He's going to need because immediately after he's done with this third prayer session, he's going to start facing the arrest and immediately after the arrest, the abuse. And so though he's physically been tormented and exhausted through these three hours of prayer and sweating blood, he is going to have to have stamina to go through everything that's going to take place in the next 12, 16 hours. And so the angel comes and helps him out. After he comes back, he's, the third time, he finds the disciples, and he says to them, rise up, let's go, the hour is come. We're going to come back to that phrase. It's an interesting phrase. He's no longer showing his weakness or sorrow. He's going to go out and meet. Jesus exhibits a totally different spirit now from the beginning of his prayer, where at the beginning, he says in Matthew, at the very beginning, he says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. He makes that comment. Now at the very end of his prayer time, he does not show any weakness, any, any distress, he takes charge. He is totally back into that realm where all of a sudden Judas comes and Jesus, they, they come. All these, these dozens and hundreds probably of soldiers come. Jesus is in control. He takes over the scene. Just absolutely. Though he's supposed to be the one being arrested. There's just this dramatic change in his persona and uh, how he's handling the situation. Now let's make some comments before we talk about the arrest. Let's talk that. Loving God. Now this, to me, this is a critical statement. Loving God does not mean we want to face hard times. 
Okay? It doesn't mean that we want to. We're not masochistic. We're not with that monastic idea that because I love God, I want to sleep on a bed of nails. Because I love God, I want to eat you know, weak old bread. That, that's not what this passage is teaching. Loving God does not mean we want to face hard times he has called us to face, but we still choose to do so. Okay? We, may have, we may have some the apprehensions. We may have, God, please... Please don't let this. Don't let me go through the, the, this trial lengthy in a lengthy way. Um, but there may there may be some concerns, and yet at the same time, we choose to do what God says. What your will, whatever it be. No matter what the depth of suffering or sacrifice we are asked to face, God's children must comply with God's will, do the mission that's assigned to us. Like Christ, we need to be willing to do God's will, no matter what we are asked to do. Praying for one another is of vital importance. The passage again. Jesus is asking for his disciples to prayer. He pray. In fact, let's make this observation. It is spiritual at times to admit weakness and the need for others to pray for you. We should be open about battles to enlist the prayer support we need from other people. For some reason, we think that that is a sign of weakness. Well, Jesus is not weak. He asks people to pray. His disciples says, I'm really battling. I'm struggling. Let me give you another thought. Jesus knows what's be- what we best. He knows what best what we are made of. He says to the disciples, pray lest you enter into temptation. He knows. He knows their weaknesses, their strengths. In the middle of his own sufferings and his own trauma, he is aware of other people's, his disciples' needs. We well-intentioned believers will face temptations and trials that are intense, Guys, you're going to enter into temptation. Praying is necessary to do in order to overcome the temptations. And he says to them, pray lest you fall into temptations. Pray, pray, pray. And ask them to do it several times. But prayer is not easy to do. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Christ. And obviously it was hard for the disciples because of the battles that they had physically. We should control our bodies, not they control our spirit or spiritual activities. The spirit is willing, but what's the weakness? What's our, what's our Achilles heel? The flesh, okay? Our, our own bodies. We should strive to pray even when our bodies don't feel like it. Okay, that's really difficult. Prayer is a necessary part of our spiritual life and service to God. Without it, we are unable to live for God the way we want to, the way he wants us to. So we diminish at times prayer. We've under, underestimated it. And Jesus is once again by example saying, this is pivotal, this is key. He's done praying, the disciples are done praying, and the arrest takes place. What happens is the account goes on, and we read in Matthew 26, and again, we're going to blend in some other passages. While he had spake, verse 47, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves. We don't know how many that is, that great multitude, um, but we'll, we'll make some observations. From the chief priests and from the elders of the people, now he that betrayed him gave a sign, gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same one is he. (coughs) Then grab him. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore are you come? Or where did you come from? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck a servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus to him, Put up again your sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be this way? 
In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out against us, uh, a thief with swords and staves, for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hand on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him. Now, when I compare, the, when you compare the different accounts, <clears throat> some of them, the, the chronology of it is a little bit different. I don't know the exact, what is the exact best chronology, so I'm just going to throw up here the different things that happen. They may be out of order by this should be here, this should be there. That's fine. Understand um, some of the different gospels happen in different order. Judas arrives with a number of soldiers. Remember, Judas has already made plans. We've read about this in Matthew 26. During the, um, during the preparations of the last night, Judas has left. He's gotten to meet, they thought probably with family, because this is Judas' home area, Jerusalem. And so Judas is gone. He's met with the high priests and their, and their cohorts who wanted to get rid of Jesus. Remember their plans were they would wait until when to get rid of Jesus. Remember it's, the, passage, the Bible gives us an indication. They're planning to get rid of him, but they're going to wait. Until after Passover... Why are they waiting until after the, the crowds all leave? The passage says, because they feared the multitude. Okay, so they're, they're conscious that Jesus is a popular figure. And they don't want to create a riot, so they, they want to do this. They feared the uproar of the people. So they're going to wait until after Passover is done. Basically, the whole celebration, people are gone home. Judas's in um, uh, participation, coming to them and saying, hey, I'll help you out. I'll find a convenient moment. That's moved the plans up. That's changed their plans. And you and I say, well, that's because Scripture predicted it would happen at this time. So that's the, it, play, the, it plays out. Jesus, remember, is fully aware of Judas's plans. At the Last Supper, he said, whatever you do, do quickly. And he sent him out. Others thought he was giving food to the poor. But Jesus knew what was going on. So Judas's, Judas's deeds are exposed to Jesus Christ. He's fully aware of it. And even though Jesus had given the sop of friendship to Judas, Judas has rejected it. Jesus had been gracious. And so Judas then goes and gets to the, to the Jewish leaders. He's found the opportune moment because that's what it says he was going to wait for. So he's found the opportune moment. He is now coming with the soldiers to get Jesus arrested, he knows that Jesus frequented, according to John 18, he knows that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane and he frequented this place. So this is Judas knows and he's provided an opportunity. They're away from the hubbub of the city. They're, they're outside, they're in the city, city proper, but they're outside the gates. They're in a quiet, remote area. They can arrest Jesus, they can get him in quickly and they'll avoid all the crowds. It's also really late at night. Okay, because not only have they had their supper, but they've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and they've prayed for how many hours at least that we know of? We know at least three hours. Okay, because each time it says he prayed for an hour or a set period of time. So we know we're into the wee morning hours. Most people in the wee morning hours are... Okay, so this is a convenient moment. This, this is an opportunity for them. Now the questions come up. Who are the soldiers that come? There's a lot. Of, you'll, you'll read. You'll get different ideas. Are they the Jewish policemen from the temple? Are they the Roman soldiers? Are they a blend? Some of the argument goes this way, that they say, okay, the words that are used are words that describe Roman cohorts, Roman groups, uh, military words. That's the word spira. 
it is a very unique term that the Romans used for their military group, groupings. Okay? Uh, a platoon, a spira. The Romans used that. It wasn't used typically of the, of the Jewish police and of their forces. Uh, but the word, the officers, the huperitas word, that is a clear word that was used in Jewish writings for describing their Jewish police. So the conclusion by some is, well, this is obviously a blend. He's using a reference to Roman troops, a reference to Jewish troops. Some will say, no, it can't be, because Pilate isn't involved in this at all. Pilate, who is in charge of the Roman troops, he doesn't get involved until Friday morning sometime. However, history does show us that the high priests at times did have at their disposal they could use Roman soldiers without going to Pilate. They could go to the captain of the guard or somebody of that sort to assist them. So it seems to lend the idea that this is more than the Jewish police force. Another reason, not only because of the terms that are used, but another reason is it talks about the number of people who are there. It calls it a multitude. Okay, Jewish police force is not a multitude. They are not big in number because the Romans didn't let the Jews have a huge police force lest they would revolt. So they kept their numbers minimum. So it seems the conclusion by many is that, okay, he's referencing a large band of officials coming and including some Roman, some Jewish authorities, officers that are coming, and they together, they, they uh, number a good number, which makes sense. The word spira referred to a grouping of 300 to 600 soldiers. So this could be a good-sized force that came out of Antonia's fortress in the middle of the night. It could be, you know, 300 people are marching down there. And so, yeah, they would hear these troops coming as they came. And so you have those references that some say. The point is a great multitude come. They're coming with swords and spears. They're armed. And Jesus even makes the comment. He says, okay, um, you know, you're coming now with such a big, a big grouping of soldiers. Why? To, you're coming out as if I am a, and he uses the term here, as if I'm a thief. The word was also used as a revolutionary, somebody who was creating revolution. And so he makes that comment. Jesus wonders out loud about it. And to me it strikes me as he's being very sarcastic, very cynical about what they're doing. And he makes the comment, um, he's, you know, when he says, why didn't you arrest me in the temple? Well, we know why they didn't. His hour had not yet come when he was preaching in the temple. And now he is saying, you're coming out in the middle of the night with such a large group. I've not hidden myself like the typical revolutionary would work underground. I've not been underground. I've been open. In fact, um, this, is, this is Thursday night. Um, just, wasn't it like four or five days ago that he cleansed the temple on Monday? Wasn't it? He did it very public. And they did nothing. And so his point is, why didn't you do something? Why do you do everything? And, and I think this is what he's driving at. What you're doing is illegal. What you're doing is unethical. It makes no sense. You're, you know, and, and by the way, it is illegal. We'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks. What the Jews do this evening, they violate all of their, religi- uh, their uh, legal code. They, they, it's, it's amazing how many of their own laws they violate in that, trying to get a Jesus. But Jesus makes the comment, and I found this very interesting. In Luke, he says to his disciples, rise up, let us go, the betrayer is at hand. He's, uh, and then he makes comment to them when they come, your hour and the hour of the power of darkness is at hand. 
So this is his observation that now it's their time. It's their moment and he's going to acquiesce. He's going to give in because this is their moment that they think they've got everything under control and so he says this is your hour. Um, What happens is Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Why? Why does Judas betray with a kiss? Uh, let, me, let me throw this out. Judas says, I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to kiss the one that you're supposed to arrest. Why would he bother telling the Roman officers, the Jewish officers, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to kiss the guy to, so you know which one it is? Why would he have to bother doing that? Okay. It is a normal greeting. It's not just an abnormal greeting. It's normal. Okay. Which we'll come back to. But why is he making sure that Jesus is being identified? Haven't they seen Jesus in the temple? Wouldn't they be able to identify him already? It's dark. Where else are you in? Not only is it in the middle of the night. Let's add to it. Where are they? They're in a garden. So what, what do you have? Not only just regular darkness. You got shadows all over. What lights does it say they brought with them? They brought torches. Do torches throw off different types of shadows? Okay. Plus, if you do have the Roman soldiers there, are the Roman soldiers as familiar what Jesus did in the temple? No, because they wouldn't be in the temple area. So, and they wouldn't have been involved. They wouldn't have been researching. So it makes sense that he's going to do it, that he's going to uh, make the, uh, help identify Jesus and make sure they get the right one. By the way, could they, could you imagine somebody saying, we've come, for instance, I'll, I'll give you, a, again, they don't know how the conversation's going. They're planning the arrest. Could somebody say, well, what if we get there and Peter or somebody says, I'm Jesus? Okay, um, who's the who's the slave that led the revolt? Spartacus. Remember the remember the scene in the movie, at the end. Who's Spartacus? And as Kirk Douglas is standing up, what happens? All of them stand up and say, "I'm Spartacus." I'm. Could could you imagine Peter saying, "I'm Jesus"? Yes, no. I mean, seriously, seriously. What does Peter do within the next few seconds? Does he, take an, does he do an act of bravery, putting his own life on the line? Okay, so you can imagine that that could be what they've talked about. It's going to be dark. We, we want to make sure we get the right guy, okay? And so they, they want to plan, and they, they want to make sure he's distinguished. And we have all these other reasons. And by the way, make note of this. It was the customary greeting that the disciple would meet his master and greet him with a kiss. It was very, very customary and proper if they had been separated for any. So Judas coming up and giving Jesus a kiss would not alarm any of the other 11. This, this was customarily appropriate, that they would greet this way. And so him, him coming, and by the way, you and I say, well, this was, Judas was trying to show great affection. This is very normal. Okay, he's following the normal procedure. I, I think there's, prob- there's a possibility here. Maybe Judas is thinking, I will do this and pretend as if everything uh, is normal and throw everybody off. Okay, remember now, they're plotting this. They've got to think this through. And so Judas doing that and making himself semi-innocent in the eyes of everybody. The point is, this gesture, as you and I read the gesture, and it's highlighted in Scripture, it makes his whole deed all the more heinous, doesn't it? that he's acting like he's still loyal to Christ, he's still showing respect to Christ, and in the meantime, he's been conniving. 
And so it's just, it's a heinous act. We understand that. Judas still called, Jesus turns to Judas and he says to him in verse 50 in this text, he says when he talks to him, he says, friend, you know, where have you been? Where'd you come from? As if he didn't know. But he still calls him close friend. Again, a gracious gesture by Jesus Christ through this whole thing. Jesus identifies himself to the soldiers. John is the only one that records this. When Jesus makes this comment, he says, whom do you all come to seek? And they say, we've come to seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, anybody remember the exact phrase, how he responds? I am he. What happens? It says in the text, okay, when it does, he says, I am he. And it says, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Okay, now, here's the way it's interpreted by some. They were surprised that Jesus would identify himself and not try to run away. They were caught off guard. And they tripped over each other. You know, 300 people falling down, you know, it's kind of a big trip. Okay. I t- interpret it totally different. That they fell backwards and they fell down is display of what? Not bad breath. His power. His absolute power that in the middle, don't, don't you see it this way? That in the middle of being arrested, who's in charge? He is. I see it as a pure display of God the Father making it clear that this is not out of control. Jesus is totally, absolutely, positively in control that he is the one. In other words, they can't arrest him unless, fill in the blank, he lets them. He lets them, absolutely. Doesn't this remind you what he said? No man takes my life, but what's he going to do? I lay it down. Okay, so, it, and I think it's a display of it. A display of courage, his power, his control. And then somewhere in here he intercedes for the disciples. Again, the, the, is it before Peter does his thing or right afterwards? Uh, you know, it happens. Peter seeks to defend Jesus. We read about this, okay, already. Jesus has already said, I'm submitting to the course of action. I'm, you know, if he, if he, by the way, if Jesus really didn't want to die, and wasn't going to go through with this, what would be the most clever thing and easiest thing he would have done? He went to state in Gethsemane. Was he fully aware of Judas and what Judas was doing? Absolutely. Okay, so he went to state in Gethsemane. He would have hightailed it out of there. And so Jesus has already submitted. Peter's lack of prayer contributes to Peter's actions. Peter says, and by the way, Luke, this is from Luke 22, where the question I asked at the beginning, is Peter the only one who was wanting to pick up the sword? And that's not true. They said, Lord, shall we smite with swords? Now, we're going to find out. If we turn to Luke, we'll find out the exact number of swords they have. These guys are not armed to the teeth. Anybody remember exactly how many they have with them? You've got to go to Luke 22 because this is an interesting phrase. In Luke 22, he's going to make a statement in Luke 22 that kind of throws a lot of people off. I don't think it'll throw you off, but it's one that throws a lot off. Luke 22, if you turn there. It says in Luke 22... John, John, we're going we're to look at his words in just uh, verses 35 and 37 in just a second. But look at verse 38. <coughs> they said, Lord, behold, how many swords do we have? We have two. And Jesus says, it, that's enough. Okay. So when they say to Jesus in the middle of this fray, they say, should we pull out the swords and attack? Okay. When they said it, it's more than Peter, you got to think, they're all nuts. <laughs> Because they have two swords between 11 of them. 
Well, maybe they thought one, one by one they'll fall and they'll pick up the sword. But they, these guys are not loaded. They are not loaded to kill bear. They are on the, uh, definitely outmaneuvered and outmanned. But Peter's the one that, with the zeal, even though Jesus has put up the sword, Peter launches towards the group and he picks not a soldier, he picks a servant who happens to be there. Now, it could be that this isn't just any servant that's a tag along. This could have been the high priest, it is the high priest servant. He could have been one of the messengers. He could have been one of the envoys. He could have been one of those who was the secretary to the high priest that is making sure things are done properly. We don't know his role. We just know that he wasn't a soldier. He was one of the high priest people. And so Peter at this moment is very, very brave. He attacks. Now that fits Peter. Peter had earlier said, I'll die for you. He wasn't kidding about it. By cutting off Malchus's ear, was Peter ready to die? The answer is, yeah, absolutely, because what would you expect the cohort of soldiers to do? Okay, yes, no, would you ex- would you, wouldn't you assume they're going to take Peter out because he's resisting arrest? What's more amazing is they didn't arrest Peter, okay, but that all plays into here because, you know, you got Peter not wanting to abandon Jesus. Here's the question that I have. Now look at Luke 22. This gets a little bit precarious. In Luke 22, down in verse 35, Jesus said to the disciples, now if you put, this, put the setting, you have the denial of Peter being predicted just before, you have the Garden of Gethsemane just after. So somewhere in this conversation at the upper room, there's something happened. Jesus said, when I sent you out, uh, when I sent you without person script and shoes, did you lack anything? Now, in the original language, it, 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 it very, very clearly, you, when, you, when you ask a question in the, in the original language, you can clearly indicate a yes or no answer. Okay? Do you want to know what this passage indicates? Very clearly from the original language. When I sent you out in the past, did you lack anything? And the answer is, no, we didn't. In other words, I took care of everything you needed when I sent you out two by two, when I sent you with the 70. Every time you went on a preaching mission, you didn't have to worry about coins or script or, or shoes. I took care of all your needs when I was with you. And then they said, uh, then he said further. They said, we didn't lack anything. He said further. But now, he that has a purse, let him get it. Likewise, he that has a knapsack, let him get it. He that doesn't have a sword, let him sell his outer coat and buy one. For I say unto you that this is written must be, yet be accomplished in me. He was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Why does Jesus tell the disciples to go and buy swords this very night? Why is he getting them armed? Okay? And so there's big question, big debate. Now, there are groups of people that say Christians are not supposed to have weapons because Jesus has said earlier, sell your swords, don't take them. That was earlier in his ministry when he made those comments. This is now at the end of his ministry and he's telling them, go and get your knapsack, go and get your coin purse, go and get a weapon. What is changing? The key words here are, but now. But now we're very emphatic. Something is changing that Jesus is telling them to make some provisions. And so the big, the big questions come up, okay, and in this context is what exactly is he asking them to do? Is he anticipating that he's getting them armed? And, and by the way, 
Here's the blame in some commentaries. It's not Peter's fault that Peter pulled the sword and jumped Malchus. Jesus created the problem. Jesus told him to get a sword. So if Jesus, you know, it's Jesus' fault that Peter did this. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think just because somebody says we should have the right to bear arms that they're the ones responsible for the violence that takes place in our country. But do you ever hear that logic being expressed that way? Yes, no? Okay, that's what they blame Jesus for in this text. I think there's a bigger picture here what Jesus is doing, but here's what we get, you know, here's the point. Jesus is saying, in the past I took care of everything that you needed, but now, okay, there's a great change taking place. I think what he's doing is he's telling them, you guys got to take the initiative now. You can't just sit back and I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to be gone. You're going to have to take some initiative of your own at this point. And so from now on, you've got to get your own purse. You've got to get your own knapsack. Your knapsack would be, you know, larger provisions for food, clothing, things of that sort. You've got to take them. And then he says, if you don't have a sword, get a sword. Why? Because in this country, in this culture, the sword was an essential need for what type of situations, okay? Well, that's the debate. Some will say, well, here, wait a minute. You have to understand what sword Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about get a knife to cut your own bread. And that's what he's referring to. This is suggested by some. That you're going to have to, you know, what you'll have to do is take care of your own food. And I'm not going to butter it anymore. I'm not going to cut your bread. You're going to have to have your own butter knife. You're going to have to have your own. The word that he uses here is not for a butter knife. It is not for the typical household knife that they would use. But some suggest that. Some say you need some type of weapon, something that you could use in, you know, like the Sakari used the same type of sword. Use it in defense of yourself against robbers and enemies. Some say, no, no, no. He's not talking about any real weapon. He's just talking about get some courage, get some backbone. And it's all symbolism. And so the comments go on and on about it. But then you have a problem with Jesus saying later on, when they do pull out the knife, he says, um, when they ask him, shall we smite with the sword? Down to Luke 22, verse 49. That he says, don't do that, don't do that. And he, Matthew says, after they ask him, should we strike with the swords? He says, he that lives by the sword shall die by the sword. So how does this all work out? Well, the disciples obviously took Jesus' comments to get ready to defend yourselves. And so when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, they right away say, should we defend ourselves? Should we do that? But Jesus says, no, no, you're going to perish by the sword. How does it all work together? Okay? Jesus is again talking about and saying comments, and, and some have suggested, and I think it's legitimate, they said, well, look at how Jesus responds when the disciples say, we have two swords, and he says, it is enough. What does he mean by it is enough? Some have concluded that what he means is, you guys just don't get it. I've had enough of this conversation. I don't think that's the case, but that's suggested. Some say that Jesus says two swords are enough to show the inadequacy of people to, to do the will of God or to stop the will of God. So, you know, whether you have two or whether you have 11, it, this is enough. The, the point is going to be displayed here that you're not able to do things. Um, maybe he's saying to these guys that, you know, for a group of 11, two are enough, though you should take some initiative, you're still going to need to trust me more. So, you know, not everybody has to be loaded to the gills, you know, you don't have to become, um, what do we call the people who are, who are uh, loading up stockpiling? Preppers. The preppers? Okay, yeah, he's, you know, is, is, there, is there a sense that we need to prepare for the future? The answer is yes, but at the same time we prepare for the future, what should we have to do? We have to trust the Lord. 
Okay, should we have some sense about preparing for our family and planning for our family in case we pass away? The answer is yes. But do we also have to trust the Lord? Yes, okay. And, I, and so there's that suggestion. Some say, hey, Jesus is saying two, two swords are enough to get you into trouble. You're going to be taken as criminals because I'm going to be taken as a criminal this night. And that's going to fulfill the scriptures. Here's where I think the whole body, Jesus is telling them to take some initiative for your own care. He's talking more than just the Garden of Gethsemane, but he's telling them that when I leave, which fits the rest of what he said earlier, when I leave now, things are changing. You are going to become the object of attacks. You are going to have need in the future at times to practice some legal self-defense. You're going to be attacked. You're going to have to make some some provisions, some plans. You're going to have to do some things. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to um, uh, take food, take script with you, and at times you're going to be left to your own wits and wiles, though I'm protecting. And by the way, doesn't God tell you to do that? Does God tell you, I will provide all your needs? Yes or no? Does he tell you to go to work? So who's providing your needs? He is. But are you doing your part? Okay, that's what he's telling them to do. Okay, same type of thing. You do your part, I'll still do my part. But in the, in the past, you've had to do nothing because I've been the one that's been doing for you. And so now you need to be careful. And by the way, later on, they're going to do this in the book of Acts. They're going to have to advocate for themselves. They're going to have to use legal recourse. They're going to have to say, Roman citizen and help to get themselves defended legally. So this idea of self-defense makes perfect sense to me. However, in light of what's going to happen this evening, this is not the time to practice self-defense in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not the purpose. I'm telling you about something further in advance. Guys, you don't fully catch everything I'm saying, but Garden of Gethsemane is a different scenario. 11 against 300... And I've already submitted myself to him. So, you know, no matter what you're going to do, you're still going to have to do some of your own part. You're going to have to take some, some uh, protection for yourself, but you're still going to have to trust me. I don't see a contradiction in Scripture. That makes perfect sense to me, that he's not telling them to be violent. He's telling them to just be sensical and yet trust me. And then he makes those statements afterwards that, you know, after Peter attacks and cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus heals the ear and Jesus says, stop. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you're rash, if you're foolish, if you're, if you're going beyond self-defense, then you're in trouble. And so he heals uh, uh, Malchus at that point, an act of charity, and Jesus makes comment to Peter and says, stop stop. Now the comments he makes to Peter are really enlightening and insightful to the grace and the goodness and the power of Jesus Christ. I'll pick up with it next week. We've got to get ready for worship.